What do we do when it feels like God isn't there? When our expectations for life don't necessarily match up to reality? Where is God when we suffer? And what should our faith look like in those times of darkness and suffering? You know, there's a big conversation right now in Christendom about a process called deconstruction. A lot of controversy over that phrase. For some, it's become a process of, of healing after some kind of hurt. Um, for some, it just ends up, and I think for most in our cultural moment, just apostasy. I think for the rest of us, it's just a fancy word for sanctification. And if you think about it, uh, imagine you're building a house. And you get to a certain part and the pieces just aren't fitting together. Have you ever done that? You, you started building something, you realized you messed up, you, you've, you've, or, or you finished and you look over, there's essential parts to what you're creating. And then what do we do, right? We cry, we curse, we, we get frustrated, we have to, you know, leave some of us just kind of devote it to destruction right then and there. Men, we're certainly guilty of that. It's usually our wives who bring us back, and we realize we have to take this thing apart, and we have to put it back the right way again. That's what deconstruction is in our cultural moment. Except I think for most, there's no reconstruction. And in fact, I think that would be a more helpful phrase for people, if not just sanctification. In life, it's, it's what we experience, it's, it's when we experience some form of pain and we wrestle with the idea of God's goodness, especially when that pain comes from within the church through some form of uh, trauma or spiritual abuse or it seems to come from God himself. And that's a very scary time. And there are very scary parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable, like Job's suffering, or the preacher's vanity of vanities, or like today in Psalm 77, the Psalter's lament. There's a darkness to the Bible, and really the world, that makes us uncomfortable. It challenges our notions of what faith is is supposed to or can look like. And, and to be honest, we dread the possibility of providence, don't we? we? We dread what might our faith look like in those times. And I understand that maybe this morning you don't have to wonder that at all. Maybe that's where you've been and you can't find a way out. And I think everything in this world, in this culture, is kind of telling us that our faith isn't supposed to look like that. Yet, Be sad for a moment, yes, but come back to happiness. You should be living that kind of best life, that triumphant, that victorious life. And Christianity kind of becomes this power of positive thinking, this blind optimism in the midst of everything. All glory and no suffering. And, and I think if anything <clears throat> needs to be deconstructed, it's that notion. We need to recover the ancient and biblical practice of lament. We really do. 
We can't be left to simply deconstruct every time life doesn't go our way or our expectations aren't met and our teachings have to adjust to the growing pains of faith. And to do that, we need to go to the Psalms. We need the Psalms. They give us words to say when we don't know what to say. They give us songs to sing when we don't know what to sing. They give us prayers when we don't know what to pray. And I think most of all, they give us a companion in our suffering. They show us what real faith looks like in the trials and darknesses of life. How to turn to God and trust in His promise when it feels like He isn't there. So today we're going to be in Psalm 77, and I want to start by defining what we mean by lament. Lament psalms are a third of the psalms and the largest category of psalms in the Bible. And his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, author Mark Brogop, I hope that's how his name is pronounced, says that lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. That lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. He says that usually includes four elements in lament psalms. Usually an address, a turning to God in the midst of that trouble, a a specific complaint. We'll parse that out here in a second. A certain request and then an expression of trust or praise. Lord, what, what's happening to me and why? How does this make sense with who you are, who I am, what you've said? Save me. I trust you. I like how one commentator put it. The essence of lament is the relationship with God. And the lamenter's refusal to give up that relationship even as he or she grapples with God about God's part in the difficulty being experienced. N.T. Wright says it's different from just a complaint. Like we're just bringing complaints to some department with, with God. He says a complaint is simply an accusation against God that maligns his character. God, God must not love me or he's evil. But lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. It's more confusion and hurt. And essentially what you have is a person who's taking their suffering to God for both intervention, yes, save me, but also interpretation. That's important to note because there's experiences and then there's interpretations of those experiences. And we need to know that we are not the most accurate, best interpreters of our own experience. Lament, then, is when we come to God in our pain and ask for intervention, yes, but also interpretation. And probably better said, reinterpretation of our experience. So we should expect as we read this psalm that we're going to see just that. Well, look at that. If you look at Psalm 77, you'll notice some patterns or you'll know some sections in there broken up by this word Salah. There's four natural sections in there. I want to propose the following practical outline, though, as we as we go through this, that I think will be helpful for us to lament with the Psalter. 
So verses 1 through 2, Asaph, the author of this song, is going to be crying out to God. He's going to be turning to God in the midst of that trouble. He's going to, uh, in verses 2 through 6, explain, describe that experience of his despair. That leads straight into verses 7 through 9, which come, it's going to, he's going to start to question God. He's going to bring these certain questions to God that are both real and rhetorical. Verses 10 through 12 are the shift in this psalm where he's, he's going to make this conscious, intentional act to remember, to muse, meditate on God. And essentially, the rest of the, the letter, or the psalm rather, is him doing just that. He's going to appeal to God's character, his promises, his works in, in verses 13 through 15. And then we close the psalm with a specific meditation. It's like Asaph is showing us exactly what he's doing, how to do that in the Red Sea deliverance. So let's, let's look at verse 1. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. The first thing that Asaph does is he turns to God in prayer. In prayer, I think we should see that as an act of faith. And that's helpful for those of us who may be questioning God's presence or our own faith during those times. Asaph makes that remark in verse 1, He will hear me. And throughout the first two verses, there are five references to prayer. This is fervent, weeping prayer, like we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane many weeks ago. Jesus is praying. He's in agony. He's strengthened by an angel. He becomes more agonized. And so what does he do? He continues to pray that much more earnestly. The text literally says that Asaph is crying loudly before God, to God. And I wonder how many of our prayers are, are like that, or at least we feel can be like that. And Asaph is persistent. I think he's, he's recalling scriptures like Exodus 2, 23-24. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Or, or the, even the next chapter over, I've surely seen their affliction. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And of course we should note he, he's not making just an arbitrary comment on, that God hears all and sees all. He means God's favorable hearing and answering. So I think really for the faithful joining in this lament, maybe we believe that God sees us and hears us, but I wonder or we wonder if and how, if and how he will answer us in the way that we want him to. Well, then he moves quickly in verses 3. The latter half of verse 2, going into verse 3, on the experience of this despair. And I think this is so helpful for us to read and relate to the psalmist. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. 
I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Firstly, I'd like to note that there's no specific context here. There's no specific context to the suffering being experienced. A lot of times in Psalms, that is the case, not the case here. And I don't, whether it's intentional or not, I'm thankful because it allows us, it's, it's, it's an invitation for us to put ourselves in this experience as well. And then notice the type of experience of despair that he's feeling, that it's whole-bodied. It's whole-bodied despair. It's a whole-bodied response that it's, that's having on his life. It's spiritual. It's, it's mental. It's physical. It's emotional. He can't sleep. He, he prays, but he describes his soul as if it has its own will, that it's waging war against him. It refuses to be comforted. He moans at the thought of God. He can't even think without being discouraged. By the end of verse 4, he can't even form words or find the use in forming them. And if that weren't bad enough, in verses 5 and 6, he's tortured by a remembrance of better times that are haunting him in the night. He wishes things could go back to normal, recover what was lost it's like the end of movies like Sandlot or Stand By Me that just rip your heart out because you know they're never going to be back together again. And, and that kind of moment that they had was, was lost. We, we feel that nostalgic loss of good times, don't we? Especially when times are bad. Those are times when we want to remember our song in the night. And I want to be careful here and use biblical language, use biblical interpretation. But I, I consider if Asaph were, were going to a doctor today. How might they diagnose him if these were his symptoms? Right? We don't have to put too much guesswork in there. More than likely, he'd be diagnosed with some form of anxiety or depressive disorder. And I, I'm sympathetic to this. I'm, I'm, I'm open to that conversation. We can have that at another time. But my point is this. Maybe alongside our current biological interpretation, there's place for that. But maybe alongside that diagnosis and treatment, we need to consider this morning this practice of lament for the despondency of our soul, for our doubts, for our questions and anxieties. It's not just theoretical, not just theological, but, but practical, I think, even in my own implementation of this practice. Well, that leads us into verse, verse 7 through 9, and Asaph begins to question. He, he's made this diligent search, and now here's, here's what he's come up with. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? 
These are the right questions, aren't they? These are the right questions. The experience of despair and pain leads Asaph and, and us into kind of this internal dialogue, this diligent search, as it says at the end of verse 6. And I think what Asaph is doing here is he's wrestling with the interpretation of his experience. And he does that by a process of spiritual reasonings. The, the questions that he asks are intentional questions aimed against a godless interpretation of his experience. They're, they're both rhetorical in nature, but as we know, they're voiced because they have a real tinge of, ex, of ex, experience to them. Right? These are things that we feel and ask, even if we know the answers. In counseling, we call this challenging assumptions or testing the evidence. These are the right questions. And don't, doesn't our suffering tempt us to answer these questions in the negative? Doesn't it feel like God has spurned us forever? Doesn't it feel like he'll never be favorable again? That steadfast, his steadfast love has forever ceased. That his promises has ended. He's forgotten to be gracious. And yet these are the questions that we really need to ponder. We really need to press ourselves on this. Is it true or does it just feel like it's true? Does the evidence really support that interpretation? Or is there possibly other interpretations that I'm not considering. These questions, rhetorical as they are, they either bring us back from the brink or they keep us away from it. As we spiritually reason with ourselves, distinguish faith in our feelings or faith in fact, faith in the Lord. And notice, too, where this dialogue is happening. It's happening in his soul. But then he's voicing it to God in prayer. Two things I want to say about that. Firstly, we need God in, to help answering those questions, right? He's exactly the person we need to be talking to about those questions. Secondly, that voicing those questions out loud in prayer is healing for us. Those feelings can go unchecked and mostly wordless in our souls. And so it's helpful to actually rationalize those feelings into words that can be seen in the light of God's counsel in his word. It's the difference between I feel sad and I'm disappointed that I'm not further in life. Two very different statements. Does that make sense? Our spirits need to make a diligent search. We, we need to really be honest with ourselves before God. There's no counsel for the fake you. The self-righteous you. The you that doesn't have any problems. Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the who. The, the sick. And that sickness comes in many forms. And it's helpful to know just what forms that takes so that we can aptly apply the word of God to that broken part of us. Well, in verse 10, it notes a shift. 
Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, if you're reading a different translation this morning, verse 10 might look a little different. I want to give a little context of why that is and why I want to translate that a little differently than what they have. It centers around two words. If you're looking in your text at verse 10, I will appeal, that's the first word, to this, to the years, that's the second word. And if you look at the word appeal, it's literally the word rub. And if we think about that, that doesn't make too much sense. But if, if we think about the, how we use the phrase worn down, okay? Because this word is either translated grief, sickness, weakness, or a kind of appeal. And if we think about the phrase to wear someone down, if, we're, if we are, sorry, my Appalachia came out a little bit. If we are worn down, it, most likely we mean we're tired, we're sick, right? But if we wear someone else down, it means we've badgered them long enough to get our way. We've made an appeal to them, okay? So it can go either way. And then as for the word years or seasons, that can be taken poetically as a whole, meaning as other translations that you might have. Then I said, my grief is this. My weakness, my sickness, the thing that's, that's making my soul sick. I think that's more accurate in the context. The changing of the right hand of the Most High, or the years, the different years. He's, he's good in this season, and then he withdraws in this season, and then he's good in this season. And really, Asaph is coming to this conclusion. That's my, that's my grief, that God isn't the same way all the time. That I'm subject to the right hand of the Most High. It's not that God's a liar. It's not that God's hateful. It's that He's not dealing as favorably as He possibly could. God hasn't changed. But the administration of, his, of circumstantial grace certainly has. And wouldn't it be great, right, if God circumstantially just blessed us to the highest possible degree at all times? Is he bound to do that? Is, is, is that what Roman 8, 28 that we quote all the time, put on mugs and signs and decor? Is that what that promises, that God always purposes to the circumstantial good of those who love God? No. There's, there's spiritual good. Their soul's good. And what kind of circumstances yield that spiritual good? Only the good ones? Asaph isn't lamenting the fact that God has changed. He's realized he's lamenting the administration of God's power according to his perfect wisdom. In verses 11 through 12, Asaph is going to use a lot of real estate to stress the importance of his commitment to remember and meditate on the works of God. There's ten references to meditation, to musing, to pondering. Four of them are here in these two verses. And this connects with verse 10, right? Because it's precisely the right hand of the Lord, the demonstration of God's power that causes Asaph's grief. So he wants to meditate on that hand, that power throughout the past. 
Piper, in thinking through this passage, notes the difference, uh, and I think it's helpful for us, between passive knowing and conscious effort. Passive knowing and conscious effort. Really, it highlights to me why we need to lament, why we need to do this in our suffering, and why it's a discipline and not necessarily something that springs forth from our heart naturally. He says the central biblical strategy for coming out of darkness and discouragement and doubt is a conscious effort of the mind. Notice these strong words of intentionality, even stronger in the Hebrew with the cohortative. I shall remember. Surely I will remember. I will meditate. I will muse. These are conscious acts that he chooses to do. This is the fight of faith, the fight for delight. This is the opposite of passivity and resignation. This is a strategy of life. Now, I don't think Piper is suggesting that we can think our way out of suffering or despair. I know that from the broader spectrum of his teaching, but I do think he's highlighting the grace that comes from meditating on the Word of God and how that's an intentional thing that we do. It takes time. It takes discipline. Most of us are probably passively doing this as we come to church or see something on social media or or read through the Scriptures every day, but we need to read for breadth and depth. But Asaph's words are helpful here because it's hard to get going when we're suffering, when we're despondent. It's not intuitive. This is not the thing that we want to turn to in the moment. I don't think Asaph is passionately meditating on these things. I think more than ever, he's waging war with his flesh. It's hard, and yet we're never... Never in more need for the truth, for true understanding when darkness tempts us to think a lot of false things, tempts us to answer those questions in verses 7 through 9 the wrong way. And I think, as hard as the statement is, that suffering is a gift for us. It's an opportunity to correct bad theology and deepen good theology. Suffering is an opportunity to correct bad theology and deepen good theology. Most of the the theodicies in the Bible don't resolve themselves by God changing who He is, changing the situation, or revealing the why of the suffering that they're in. But the change comes through the sufferer's view and understanding of God. And what can feel like a crisis of faith is really just the growing pains of that faith. And so he has this commitment in verses 11 through 12. So we should expect to see that for the rest of the psalm. Look in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. This is the fruits of that labor. Now, initially, Asaph is introducing us to the Red Sea narrative in Exodus chapter 14. And we know that because of what follows in Psalm 77, but also because verses 13 through 15 in Psalm 77 are almost identical to Exodus chapter 15, verses 11 through 13. 
That's the song of Moses. This is an excerpt, almost, from the song of Moses. Listen. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And in that excerpt, and in here in Psalm 77, Asaph is appealing to multiple things. They both appeal to God's nature. God is holy. He is other. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. He's great. There's no God above God. He's not bound by the ordinary. Nothing is impossible for him. He appeals to God's works, his wonders, his power, his redemption that leads to his covenant his people, children, Jacob and Joseph. And I think in the larger picture, he's appealing to the testimony of other saints. Meaning, here's a people in Exodus 15 saying these words after the events of Exodus 14, the crossing of the Red Sea. And Asaph is drawing hope from that. I think he was, I think he was struck by what he was reading. He was struck by the similarity he found to their situation to his own because it offered a different interpretation of his own experience of suffering. Now it's interesting that Asaph flips those around. He starts with the song of Moses and then he's going to go backwards to the crossing of the Red Sea to give the context for that praise. And it's begging the question for us. How do we get from the Passover to the song of Moses? How do we get from the Passover to the Song of Moses? From the threat and fear of suffering there at the leaving of Egypt to coming to the Red Sea, the feelings of the absence of God to overwhelming praise to the presence of God. So as we read the rest of Psalm 77, the the following verses, let's think about the circumstances surrounding the Red Sea deliverance and compare them to our own seasons of sufferings and darkness. What can the Red Sea deliverance tell us about the ways of God? How can this story help us reinterpret our own experience? Read in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. He's vividly describing the Red Sea crossing as something so absolutely terrifying and equally so absolutely filled with the presence of God. He's comparing that experience to his own experience of despair. So so what conclusions can he draw about that experience to help him interpret his own and by extension us too? You don't have to turn back to Exodus 14, but I've got several points here. Firstly, that God had appointed it. God had appointed the Red Sea crossing. In Exodus 14, verses 1 through 4, God had told them to encamp against the sea, to basically stop and wait and put themselves in this position of disadvantage 
to wait for the Egyptians, that who he was stirring up, all for his glorious plan. In verses 5 through 9 of Exodus 14, we learn that the odds are even that much more stacked against them. The Egyptians had weapons, trained soldiers, chariots. Verse 10, the people, when the Egyptians get there, respond in fear, confusion, and weeping. And this leads to them complaining against Moses. This is not their plan for salvation. They would not have planned it this way. And the Israelites don't see God's plan at all. They cry against Moses. They regret. They wish they had never left Egypt. They feel like this has all been a waste. They're certain of their doom. Why they even stop or why they stop here. And I think if we were planning our salvation, it wouldn't include any suffering either. In fact, we would probably like them avoid any situation that needed salvation at all. In verse 13 and 14, the Lord reassures them. He says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Verse 15, He he tells the people to, to break camp and get ready to move. And the Lord gives sp- specific instructions to Moses, their intercessor, on how he'll do this and why. But notice the why. Verse 17, I will get glory over Pharaoh. In verse 18, the Egyptians will know. Not the, just those Egyptians, other Egyptians. Has it ever occurred to you that your suffering might not be about you? What kind of life gives God glory? The one where you're awesome all the time and the best at everything? The one where you don't suffer, don't have any weaknesses? But even after the promise and plan in verses 19 and 20, the people of Israel have to wait all night. They have to wait. Their deliverance isn't instantaneous. They're left with faith to wait out the store that comes in verse 21. And the sea is supernaturally divided by very natural means. There's a strong east wind. And then they finally have to cross it. The people of Israel walk in faith and fear in the midst of a sea. And I just want you to imagine, to try to put yourself in their shoes, if we had some kind of red dawn moment during church and we all walked out and there's some kind of army invasion and they start backing us up to the Ohio we know we can't cross it we'll drown the undertow the current is too strong and then the Lord sends down this pillar of of fire to separate us and them and he tells us his plan and then he starts then we have to wait we have to wait all night in this terrifying Storm like we had two weeks ago where the tornado sirens are going off every you know, five minutes. That's the, the exact time we should be ducking in our basement or other people's basements. And then finally, as the morning's breaking, there's dry land. Now let me ask you, who's going to take that first step? And let's say you take that first step. How do you know that those walls on either side are going to come down at any time. 
You don't. This would have been a terrifying experience. But even as their deliverance becomes clear, verses 23, the Egyptians are allowed to pursue them into the sea. And the Lord's letting them do that. Seems like they just got things figured out. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then the next thing. They finally realize that the same waters that had saved them destroys the Israelites. And then only when they settled in verse 30 do they start to understand what had happened behind them. And the end result in verse 31 is that they uniquely saw the power of God. It says... They saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then in chapter 15, you finally get back to where Asaph started to the song of Moses. What's Asaph's conclusion then? Let's read those words in 19 and 20 of Psalm 77. Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's his conclusion? It was through the sea, through the waters, through that great trial, that great suffering, that sickness, that weakness, that loss, that roadblock, that betrayal, that wrecked relationship, that broken marriage. It's not around it. Not void of it, but through it. It wasn't, it wasn't our path, but your way is holy. It's other than our way. We wouldn't have camped by the sea. We certainly had no intention of crossing it. But your path magnifies the glory and greatness of your power. The life of faith is not a life of leisure and comfort. It's a life of walking by faith and exalting Christ through suffering. Does the Lord have you encamped by great waters this morning? Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Is the storm starting to pick up around you? Break camp. Make ready. Are you in the midst of the stormy sea with walls on both sides? Keep walking. Is the next crisis hot on your tail just when you thought things couldn't get any worse? Keep walking. What what if people are being swallowed up in the same waters that you're walking through? Keep walking. What if you're closer to the Egyptians? You're you're further from the shore. What What if others reach the shore before you? What if you're the last person in the pack? What if it takes your whole life To make it out of the sea. Friends, we have to keep walking. We're going to go through many waters in this life. This life feels like one giant water. And and, and for some of us, I know, I know that we're just biologically predisposed to kind of walk through one giant sea of despondency for some of us circumstantially we're just walking through one giant sea after another of struggle suffering and it's enough to make us lose hope it really is but we're not walking alone we have like in verse 
20, a greater Moses, a greater Aaron, the good shepherd of our souls, whose sheep know his voice and he calls them by name. And like a good shepherd, Jesus goes before his sheep. Jesus isn't taking us somewhere that he's not been. He's walked through the waters of death. And he stands on the shores of promise. Notice the third line in verse 19. Yet your footprints were not seen. What does he mean by that statement? Because i got to tell you, this is my favorite part of the psalm. Isn't that our angst in our troubles? Where are you, God? I can't see your footprints. I don't understand your ways. I can't see where you're going. If I could just, if you could just... And isn't that a crazy statement after everything that's just happened in the Red Sea crossing? God's been in the pillar of the fire and in the cloud, the plagues, the storm, their salvation. But technically, Asaph's right. God's footprints weren't technically seen. I want to make a few notes on this. Firstly, just because you can't see how the Lord is using what you're going through doesn't mean that He isn't. It doesn't mean that He isn't. God's working something marvelous in your suffering for His greatest glory and your soul's greatest good. Secondly, that no amount of the presence of God is going to eliminate pain and doubt. No amount of the presence of God is going to eliminate pain and doubt. Why? Because God's not the problem. We are. We are. Jesus' ministry is proof of that. Here is the presence of God made manifest, incarnate, with miracles, with truth, and yet people don't believe. People still doubt, even some of his closest disciples. God's not the problem. We are. Thirdly, we don't get to dictate God's presence with us. We don't get to dictate God's presence with us. Our experience may change, but the fact does not. God was so obviously there in the Red Sea, and yet not quite there in the way Asaph would have liked if he were there, and like we would like God to be present in our sufferings. We need to recover this practice of lament. Let's weep before the Lord. Let's, let's contend with the Lord over His goodness. Let's let that goodness be both our hope and confusion in dark times. Let it be times where our faith can grow deeper, times where we make diligent searches in ourselves and in the Word of God to meditate on all His wondrous deeds. And even still, this much is true. That Jesus is a man truly acquainted with grief, Truly reason to weep, who mourned over the weeping and, his, and pain of his people. He joins them. He took upon himself on the cross of weeping every painful tear and its cause. To vindicate, to redeem a people from tears shed by them and because of them. My question this morning is, has God not heard the cries of his people and answered us most fully 
and the giving and weeping of his beloved son. Has he not? Then take courage when you cry. He will hear you. In highest courts, with holiest vengeance, with sincerest mercy, he will hear you.